The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. 8474. This morning I have the privilege of introducing one of our graduating seniors. As you may remember, during this particular semester and in the fall, the faculty invited several seniors uh, to bring morning devotion. So this morning we have Christopher Smith, one of our seniors, to come and bring us God's Word. So lead us in morning devotions, Chris. Well, good morning. It's a very great honor and privilege to be up here this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 2, and then skipping down verses 11 through 32. As we look at the parable of the prodigal son, a very familiar passage, I'm sure, to all of us and to the church today, and even much of the world as we hear this language used, even by those who may not know where it is found. So Luke chapter 15, and starting in verse 1. Now the tax collector who sent him into his fields to feed pigs... And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, What are these things to mean? And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, But he devoured your property with prostitutes who killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that your spirit would illumine us this morning to understand your word and to see the glories of your grace in it. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I thought about what passage I should choose as I would come here before you to do these devotions, I began to wonder, okay, what would I want to hear myself? What would it be nice to hear as perhaps a seminary student? What is something that maybe I'm prone to forget? Because if you haven't figured it out by now, we're sinful and we tend to forget things. And there's a tendency, I believe, 
that as we study more and more the grace of God, as we begin to understand more and more about these things, that perhaps the shock of them will wear off. Perhaps we'll begin to forget what it is that we have received when we received God's grace. I can think of a new convert at the church where I'm a member. And he is just wonderfully uh, wonderfully happy about this grace. He's wonderfully shocked by it that he could be receiving the grace of God, he as a sinner. And I look at him, and I think about myself, and I wonder, well, maybe I've lost some of that. And so I thought perhaps it would be helpful to turn to a passage like Luke 15, which is shocking, would have been shocking to its original audience, but to us perhaps has lost some of its punch. has become perhaps a little bit too familiar. We need to be reminded of grace. So as you look at Luke chapter 15, we see three parables here. And all three parables are explaining the same thing. They all have the same point. But this parable, this last one, is the most surprising. It's the most shocking in what Jesus says. All three of these parables are about something that is lost being found. Whether it's a coin, or a sheep, or a son. And they are meant to show us the joy in heaven that exists when a sinner repents, as we see in chapter 15 and verse 10. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so as we look at this parable, it is meant to explain this to us. We see three characters, which is very helpful if you're going to preach this sermon, by the way. It's very convenient. We see the prodigal son, the father, and the elder brother. And so we'll begin by looking at the prodigal son as he sets up the story, and most of the story is spent really showing what happens to him and how he's received back. Perhaps you've read this older book written in 1995 by Marsha Witten called All is Forgiven, the Secular Message in American Protestantism. And it's admittedly dated by now. But in this book, she, among other things, looks at how different churches in America interpret the story, this parable of the prodigal son. And she really divides it into two camps. On the one hand, there are those who see the elder brother as the wrong one, and they tend to identify themselves more with the prodigal son. And as you can probably guess, the other camp are those who see the prodigal as the problem and identify themselves more with the elder brother. And we can ask, is this what we are supposed to see? Is this what Jesus wants us to take away from his words here in this parable? Or is there something else going on here? Well, in chapter 14, if we were to read the longer, larger context, we would see the parable of the great banquet, perhaps a familiar story, where the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, the outcasts, are brought in to the great feast, the great banquet. And then we see Jesus at the beginning of our chapter this morning, dining with tax collectors and sinners. And we see the Pharisees and the scribes just irate at this. They can't understand why is he doing this. Basically, they're saying, how dare he eat with these people? How dare he come to a table with these people, these sinners, these turncoats, these rejects, these outcasts of society. And so as Christ is beginning to tell this parable, he begins with this son, this prodigal who's living at home and who hates it, as we see. And he wants his freedom, but he doesn't want his freedom just for freedom's sake. He wants his freedom so that he can go out and sin. He wants his freedom to go out 
and do what he wants. And so he comes to his father and basically says, Father, you're as good as dead to me. Give me my inheritance now. I don't want to wait for you anymore. Now, in any society, that would be rude, to say the least. But in first century Jewish society, this is one of the most hateful things that you can do. And so this is what he does. This is the first shocking thing in the parable. His dad was dead to him, and he wanted to be away from him. He only wanted his father's gifts. He didn't want his father himself. And then we come right away to the second shocking thing in this parable. The father does it. It doesn't make sense, perhaps, to us. To hear this ingrate comes to you, says, I wish you were dead. You're as good as dead to me. I want your stuff. Give it to me. And he gives it to him. This is not what Christ's original audience would have expected. This is not how things worked, yet this is how things work in this parable. And he goes off to a far-off place, as we read. Now, many of us are from far-off places, as we think of them, as far as Southern California is concerned. Perhaps we can think back of our home and realize it is pretty far off from where we are. That isn't quite what this is getting at here in Luke. When he says a far-off place, he means Gentile lands. What he's basically saying in a few words is that this son becomes an apostate. This son turns his back on his family, on his country, on the land, and on his religion. He turns his back on his God, on his Lord. And he runs away. And how did he waste his money in a Gentile land? The text seems to indicate that we really do not want to know, and yet we kind of do. It would be like if one uh, of us, say, were to do this, and to run off to Las Vegas and within a few months be broke. You don't really want to know how we did it, but you kind of do. You kind of already know. That's basically what he's doing. And we see the, the older brother referencing prostitutes later, that he squanders this money in the worst-case scenario for a first-century Jewish family. He cuts off all ties to his family. He turns his back on his God. He runs away, his father being dead in his mind, essentially. And instead of trying to preserve the family name, instead he squanders part of his father's fortune, and in so doing it, heaps shame upon shame upon his father. But then we see his money runs out. He's left poor and vulnerable. And it just so happens that that's when the famine hits. And it doesn't take much imagination, I don't think, to realize that when a famine hits, the price of food goes up. The price of food does what the price of gas has been doing in the last several weeks. Shooting up, making you wonder, how am I going to pay for this? And he has no money. He has no job. He's vulnerable. And so we come to another shocking thing in this parable. Now, at this point, you can almost imagine the scribes and Pharisees thinking, yes. This is exactly what should happen. This is exactly what he deserves. And so he's poor and destitute, and he goes to a citizen of this far Gentile country, and he hires himself out, and the man sends him into his field to feed his pigs. Now, I grew up in a place where I've smelled a lot of different animals. I have smelled pigs, I've smelled cows, I've smelled horses, I've smelled chickens. But of all of them, the one I want to forget the most is the smell of pigs. It's terrible. It's awful. But that's not the shocking part. It's not 
a good, a pleasant part, but for a first century Jewish audience, a pig is unclean. And if he's feeding these pigs, if he's daily in contact with these pigs, then he's unclean and he's outside the camp, essentially. He's outside the Jewish community. And the pigs have it better than he does. This is rock bottom. He's desperate, he's unclean, and he's alienated. And Christ is here describing the tax collectors and the sinners with whom he is sharing a table. And really, we can think this describes every sinner. As we read in Ephesians 2, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, that they at one time, just like as we were, were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is really a description of the prodigal at this point. But we see that the story doesn't end here. At some point as he's wallowing in the filth and the mud of the pig pen, as he's envious of what the pigs have that he doesn't, he seems to come to his senses and he repents. He understands that he sinned against heaven, that he sinned against his father. And although he repents, he doesn't quite understand grace yet. He's basically saying, is there a way back to the Father? If there is, I have to work for it. I'll try to convince him, I'll run back to him and try to convince him to let me be a hired servant, to be one of his hired hands. And as Dr. Horton likes to remind us from time to time, that we're wired for law. And sometimes we ask the question, will God receive us or will we have to work for it? Well, now we turn to the second character, in this story to find the answer to the Father. And we see that there's an expectation that's been set up so far. We expect him to be thrown right off the property as he returns. This is what he seems to have expected. He thinks he's going to have to talk his father into letting him stay as a servant. He thought, best case scenario, he'll have to talk his father into this. In Deuteronomy 21, we read that when there's a rebellious and stubborn son who does not repent but brings shame upon his family and sins against them, that the recourse is to stone him to death at the city gates. And the Jews aren't allowed to stone anyone to death at this point, but it would seems to be, as we read historical context, that what would have probably happened is there would have been a ceremony where the son would be humiliated and cast out. You are metaphorically dead to us. You are no longer my son. This is what we expect. This is what he expects. But then we read chapter 15, verse 20 the most shocking part of this shocking story. And he, the son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father runs, which is something that men of his age in that day didn't do. He had to hike up his long robes and run. It wasn't exactly fitting for a father to do this. It wasn't exactly dignified. But we see that the son is forgiven before he can even get the words out, before he can even try to begin to work for it, before he can even try to convince his father to let him become a servant. And he begins this uh, uh, pre-practice speech, but he doesn't get very far. He doesn't get all the way because he's already forgiven. And the father provides sandals and a ring and a robe. Because the son is lacking all these things. The son has nothing to offer. And we can think, and the first century audience probably would have thought of certain things 
in what we now know as the Old Testament that had something to do with this, that God provides a clothing for his son. As God provided it for Adam and Eve, as God provided it for Joshua, the high priest in Zechariah. And then, even more shocking, he takes the fattened calf and kills it and throws a feast. Now, the fattened calf is basically saved only for special occasions and for honored guests. So what the father is doing is he's looking at the worst imaginable son and he's giving him the best possible meal. This isn't what's supposed to happen, we think. This isn't what we expect to happen. The son here has received the opposite of what he deserved. And as we think about it, so have we. All of us who are trusting in Christ. And so we come finally to the elder brother, who hears the story as he's coming back from the field, and he's upset. And he refuses to come into the feast. He refuses to come and celebrate. And we see in verse 28, as we read it, that the son is all, the father is also concerned about this elder son. We see that he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. And the elder brother, in effect, is saying, Father, do you know what he did to your name? Do you know how he acted? Either you don't know, or you don't remember, or you don't care. And we see here that, in a sense, both sons are alienated from their father. But only one comes to realize this. Only one really comes to realize his need. And the Pharisees and the scribes in this story are the elder brother, as Christ tells it. We can think of similar things, like in Matthew 23, where Christ says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And so at different parts in this parable, there are two lost sons. There is a younger son, who's lost in his sin and debauchery, who is then trying to work his way back to the father. And then there's the older brother, the elder son, the one who he thinks has obeyed the law pretty well, the one who doesn't need to come back and work for it because he's been working from it from the beginning. He's done a pretty good job, at least in his mind. He's the self-righteous one. And both make the father's love conditional on their obedience And we see that that's not how it works. That isn't how things go in this parable. There's a party thrown, and the party is for one who was dead and is now alive, who was lost and is now found, and no amount of working can accomplish that. We read in Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And this parable is an illustration of that. It shows the grace of Christ, and it shows how shocking this grace really is when we sit there and consider it, when we let ourselves hear it as if we're hearing it for the first time. This party, this feast, is for one who was dead and is now alive. And for the Pharisees to come to enter into the feast, they first needed to realize that they were dead. As we close, we know this this parable tells us certain things. It tells us that the self-righteous and the open sinner both need the grace of God and are lost 
without it. And that this is why Jesus came. This is why he lived, died, rose again, ascended, and even now intercedes for his people. And as we approach the end of the semester, and as some of us approach the end of seminary, we would do well to remember the shocking nature of grace, of this grace that we've been studying for so long. And many of us have different vocations, whether we're graduating now or whether we're just starting, that eventually we plan on going out as ministers or as elders, as teachers or as laymen and women into the world, into the church. And we have the striking, striking privilege of being able to declare this grace of God, this gospel, to our congregations, to our families, to our friends and neighbors and coworkers. We can tell them that there is grace enough for them even as there is grace enough for us, as shocking as that is. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this parable. We thank you for how it helps us to see the nature of your grace to us in Christ. We pray that we would remember these things, that we would be shocked once again by what we have received, not because of what we have done, but in spite of it. We pray, Father, as we continue in this semester, as the end comes to us, that we would finish well and that we would remember these things as we go about our summer plans. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California, 2019. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.